So we are remaining the best one-time conference ever. Do you know someone who works the United Nations came up to me yesterday and said, you know, this is on the internet. People know that this is the, globally, this is the best one-time conference ever. And I looked at him like, is this for real? He was sitting there, he was eating pasta, so I guess it was real. So we can now move on to our second Saturday morning keynote, and it involves a very, very special treat from Dr. Christopher Emden. And as it says in the program, but it's certainly worthy of public announcement, Dr. Christopher Emden is a year 2014 White House Champion of Change Award recipient. And he has received that recognition in the White House on February 26 for his work advancing STEM. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that's science, technology, engineering, mathematics. And then we're also very happy because he's a Caperton Fellow and Hip Hop Archive Fellow at the W.E.B. Du Bois Institute at Harvard University. And the best news of all is that it doesn't appear, despite their best attempt, that Harvard has stolen him from us. So we're very, very happy. Hopefully they won't try and double their efforts to steal him since he's still there for this semester. He's a professor of science education in the Department of Mathematics, and he's the science and technology director um, for our Center for Health Equity and Urban Science Education, and he's also co-director of the annual Health Disparities Conference. So because of the extraordinary work of Dr. Christopher Emden, we are able to say that our Center for Health Equity and Urban Education is able to advance the integration of hip hop plus health equity plus educational equity. So we are absolutely delighted that we have with us someone who by the end of this century, we're gonna be able to revere as an intellectual uh, contributor to our culture in ways that will leave a mark well into the next millennium. Not every university, not every center can say that they have a scholar, a researcher of his um, stature. Uh, so when you think about, um, you know, who did you get to say hi to at the sixth annual Health Disparities Conference? Whose hand did you get to shake? Who did you get a photograph with? I, I challenge you, you know, Ellen uh, at the uh, Oscars sent a tweet around the world. Well, you know, if, if you wanna be in on something that's our global secret, then you might wanna get a picture and start tweeting it and saying, here I am with someone who we're gonna revere for the rest of this century and well into the next as a scholar, as a researcher of note. We're making history today by being able to hear him speak. And so here we go, the one and only, the best part of the conference, Dr. Christopher Emden. And, and guess what? We don't have to give him an award, right? Because the White House did it, and you can't beat that. So there goes $125 we saved. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. You guys doing all right? All right. So um, before, before I begin, I just want to say one thing. So anybody here, is anyone here tweeting? No one? Anybody has a Twitter account? How about, so let's start tweeting. All right, so if you, if, if you have your Twitter account, you know, have your Twitter, your Twitter open. 
um, throughout the talk and even hopefully throughout the rest of the conference, please tweet using the hashtag HipHopEd, so H-I-P-H-O-P-E-D. You can also use hashtag choose. Um, and then before I begin, I also wanted to say this. So I, I want to just express my most deep appreciation. Well, first of all, that introduction, I've never received an introduction like that ever. Um, my, my most deep um, appreciation and gratitude uh, to Dr. Wallace, she, who's co-directing the, the Center for Health Equity and Urban Science Education with me and this conference. So in the last year, I've been on sabbatical, which means that I'm not on campus. I'm actually not even in New York. And somehow she figured out a way to single-handedly do what she always does, which is create magic. Um, you know, my doc students are calling me. Folks are like, where are you? And she's like, let him have his time. And she coordinated this amazing conference on her own. And I just, I, I'm, I'm in awe of her brilliance and her humility and the amazing things that she does. So please, let's just put our hands together for Dr. Wallace. Um, and, and being here today is kind of like a little bit of a homecoming. So since that's the case, um, I, I'm going to give you options. So uh, there, are two, there are two speeches. The one speech is, you know, Professor Emden, um, and, and I could give the hyper-academic speech if that's what you prefer. Um, and then the second speech is just Chris feeling like he's back home in his zone and just to have some real talk with, with, with family about the issues surrounding this conference. So if you'd like speech A, please raise your hands. <laughs> Nobody wants speech A, all right? We got one person who said she wants speech A, but you're like so outnumbered that it's not even going to work. Well, we can have a nice academic talk afterwards, if you'd like. Um, and, and so, and speech, speech B? Yay. All right. And some folks, you know, were like, well, neither one. Um, so we'll do speech B. So we're going to do speech B. I'm going to put my laptop away. I'm going to just put down some notes that I jotted um, on the way here today. I'm going to take off my blazer so we can just have a real conversation. Um, so, 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 so let's talk. Um, maybe like three months ago, I was invited to a conference um, downtown Manhattan um, with a bunch of brilliant uh, medical doctors, healthcare professionals, um, and the theme of the conference was to showcase and highlight the brilliance of these folks who were, who were doing work to address issues in health, um, to talk about diseases that are ravaging um, urban communities or communities at large. Um, you know, folks who people identify as this guy is in a laboratory or is in a hospital or is in a healthcare setting doing work to change the world. So we're sitting there and we're in this beautiful cavernous room with chandeliers hanging and, you know, the lights are just dimming off the chandeliers at the, at the perfect angle. And it was a sort of air of opulence in the place with all these brilliant people. So I got there and I'm sitting at the table. I'm kind of feeling myself. I'm like, all right, I, you know, I can could, I could fit in a space like this. So I'm at the table with these amazing um, doctors and we heard a singer sing, and then it became the time for dinner. And at dinner, that's when you make all the small talk in these kind of spaces. You know, the wine and cheese, small talk kind of deal. So, you know, I sit there, and um, I start talking to the guy who's right next to me. I'm like, you know, so, so what do you do, and why, why are you here at this, at this conference? He says, well, you know, I do some research on, on brain cancer. And, and, and really just addressing that. And I'm working towards faster cure so we could shorten the time for the development of the treatments and really do in-depth research for the time that we're given and secure money and funds. And you know, I was so impressed. I was like, wow, just keep doing what you do, bruh. Like, I, I, I love it. I said, bruh, he wasn't, he wasn't a brother, but you know. Um, <laughs> and I just, just keep doing what you do. Thank you so much for what you do. And he, he said, thank you. And he was so gracious. And then I, I turned to my other side 
And it was a, a, a younger guy sitting next to me. And I said, you know, so, so what is it that you do? You know, what brings you to this conference to address this issues related to health? And he said, man, um, you know, I work with, with colorectal cancer treatment. And I, again, was in awe. And that spoke to me in a whole lot more than even the previous guy, because my, my younger sister, my best friend, passed away at 28 from colon cancer. So, so when, I, when I heard that from him, I, I just said, thank you for what you do. You know, you do amazing work. Thank you. And so inevitably, we went around the table, and people doing amazing work, so it has to circle back to me, right? So they said, so, so, so Dr. Emden, it's, it's nice to have you here. You know, wh what do you do? You know, what is the disease that you're focused on that you want to address? And I said, education. And, and I, it's, like I, it's, like I, it's like I picked up a gun and shot something in the air. The whole room dropped. It felt like the music stopped. Everybody was just staring at me. And the guy that asked me the question looked at me, and his brow was all furrowed up. And he said, education? And I said, yes, you know, education. And that moment, in that second, I was reminded of why Dr. Wallace and I started to have a conversation about a Center for Health, Equity, and Urban Science Education because the issues that ravage us when we talk about education are a disease. They are so deeply embedded in the fabric of Americana that we can't help but see it as a disease that is ravaging our communities. So we could talk, of course, about the fact that you know, poor education predicts poor health. We know people who have a poor education. If you drop out of high school, you're more likely to do a whole list of things that are going to make sure that you don't have a healthy lifestyle. But, but how often do we stop and think about the process of education as the disease in motion? As the, as the, if, if we could address the education issue, and we could address the literacy issue, and we could address the empowerment issue, then we can address the larger health issues, can't we? So I'm, I'm thinking, I'm talking to a dude, and, 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 then I, and I started thinking about my work in urban classrooms, like the kind of work that, that Dr. Wallace and I initially started having a conversation about when we met in a hallway a couple years ago. And, and the first thing she said was, you know, you're doing this hip hop stuff is interesting, but you know, just tell me a little bit more about what's going on in classrooms. And I was like, you know, Dr. Wallace, I, I'm in these schools across New York City, and I'm seeing these young men of color, and they are just grossly underperforming. And it, it's killing me. I'm losing sleep, literally losing sleep at night about this. But at the same time, I'm seeing these, these young ladies in classrooms, and they are getting higher grades. They are sitting up front. You know, they are seemingly paying attention. You know, what's going on here? And I'm like, why is it the boys are underperforming and the girls are doing so well? Like, I don't know, I don't understand how to frame this given my training and education. Like, what lens do I use to attack this problem? And I, I started thinking about the fact that what if we started looking at those issues as, as, as disease? What if we start looking at them as health issues? And and then start comparing like we would compare folks who were given certain drugs in certain spaces to see who was doing well or who isn't. So we went and I looked into these schools and I started having conversations with the young ladies about how well they were doing in these classes, in these science classes. And they were like, we're doing great. And I asked the young men, how are you doing in the science classes? And they were like, you know, we doing all right, fam. Like, you know, we good. And then I started talking to the teachers about how the students were doing. And they were like, you know what, those girls, 
those pretty brown girls up front, they're doing phenomenally. And I said, all right, well, well can I look at their test scores to see exactly how phenomenally they're doing? So we went and we looked at the test scores for these young women of color, and I said, well, they're doing all right, but let me look at the test scores for these young men of color as well. And when I started looking at the tests, something jumped out at me. And what jumped out was, I said, man, they writing the same answers. She said X, Y, Z. He says X, Y, Z. He got all the answers wrong. She got partial credit. What's going on? I said, Chris, you're bugging out, man. This is, this is just one classroom. You, you know, you wildin'. Just relax. Um, go to another class. Go to another class. Same thing. The girls are sitting up front. They're paying attention. They're raising their hands. They're, they're scoring high on the report cards. They're valedictorian of the school. We went back, look at the test scores, and they're scoring the same. And in some instances, less than the boys who they are on the report cards getting higher grades than. I said, all right, you know, maybe I'm bugging. So we went to school after school after school after school and saw the exact same phenomena to the point now we started realizing that what we were witnessing is a syndrome, a pretty brown girl syndrome in these schools where young women of color are getting higher grades, are being given accolades for not learning. That they're being given these high grades for playing a role of who they should be, which is pretty, brown, quiet, silent girl. And so when we're focusing on these boys who are underperforming because they're outrightly and blatantly saying, I won't learn from you because you don't care about me, they've learned the game that if I'm pretty brown and I act nice enough and I say sir enough times, I get validated. And by that validation, by this teacher, means that I'm okay. But guess why it's a syndrome? And guess why it's an indicator of a deeper disease? Because the young people who are most likely to drop out from university are those young women of color who have been given these inflated grades and made to feel like they can be successful when in reality, when they're confronted with challenge, they crumble. Without looking and utilizing the lens of a healthcare professional, a health expert, to be able to identify a syndrome that's ravaging a community, I would have no framework to address an issue that's prevalent within a community that no one is having a conversation about, which is that all our students within all our schools are being undertaught. And the fact that we can utilize those pretty brown girls as an exemplar allows folks to feel like they don't have to address the needs of all students because, well, some of them are successful, so maybe it's just them. When the reality is that this deep disease embedded in the bones of the American educational system is under-teaching all of our young people. But I couldn't identify it unless I learned to adopt the lens of the healthcare professional, of the healthcare researcher. We talk all the time about post-traumatic stress disorder. And we know it's a very real thing for people who come from, from war and people who, who live in communities where they live in war. We talk about uh, Chicago. When the young people call Chicago Chirac, and when the young people are calling Brooklyn uh, Brooknam, it's not accidental. They're saying that my life experiences are analogous to war zones, but we're not listening. That's a whole different conversation. Don't take me there right now. But 
The reality is that when we talk about PTSD as it's experienced by these young people, how often as an educator do I go into a classroom and realize that as I'm in those spaces, as, as, as like right after the Trayvon Martin case, I started realizing or seeing something that just jumped out at me. As an educator, I had no lens to understand it. I, I had no tools to really make sense of it. But I'm realizing that these young men are all of a sudden so hypervigilant. They're looking over their shoulder. They're walking down the hallway, scared, shook. And I'm wondering what the heck is going on. And what I'm realizing is that, well, if, if, if these healthcare professionals have identified a post-traumatic stress disorder and post-Trayvon, I'm seeing these things being expressed by these young men of color. As an educator, I have no lens. Well, isn't this a post-Trayvon stress disorder? And as educators, we can't have a conversation about this because we don't have the lens to adopt to make sense of it. Y'all understand where I'm going here? So if a post-Trayvon stress disorder exists, and without having the language to be able to attack it and address it, it just goes there, it sits there, laying in there, doing what it's supposed to do. And we have a pretty brown girl syndrome going on, and without the language and the theory to be able to understand it, it goes there and lays under there. It means that as an educator, I have to learn to partner up with and learn from my partners who are doing this work in the health field. If that is the case, then as healthcare professionals, we must also, to be able to meet our goals and push our agendas across, learn to adopt the language and the practices of educators. See, teaching and learning occur in a tandem, it's a dance. If I steal from you, you can steal from me, then we make this thing happen. If I need to understand what the healthcare professional is doing to make sense of my work, then we have to view each and every healthcare professional as an educator, or at least an educator in training. If we don't see our work as also teaching, like I see my work as also addressing health disparities, then we'll all lose and these things remain dormant. When I talk about this teacher as healthcare professional or healthcare professional as a teacher, I'm talking about adopting each other's languages, I'm talking about adopting each other's practices, and more specifically, I want to iron out or lay out some things for the healthcare professional to do that become best practice in education that will improve our practice. The first thing I want to talk about is the whole discourse approach to instruction. The whole discourse approach to instruction. What do you mean by the whole discourse approach to instruction? It is just this. If you're addressing, engaging in dialogue with, or communicating with a client, you have to understand that the best way to share information is by understanding the whole discourse that that person brings to the table. Meaning then that our role as an educator is to, we you know this, speak in the language of the person that you're serving. Yes. But what do educators do? when they're confronted with this phenomenon. It's not just in talk, it's in practice. Meaning then, in any space where you're addressing a client that you have to meet their needs, you have to be able to have a space on that wall where you're talking about whatever issue is going on in your life in the academic jargonistic language concurrently with your own linguistic practices. And learn to use those things interchangeably in your communication with said client, but also ensure that they're able to use those language, language interchangeably with you. See, we cannot serve them if we're giving them. You serve them by giving them, but also introducing them to the language of power. Because once you're introduced to the language of power, when you can use your colloquial language as well as the academic language concurrently, whenever you go to get your needs met in a healthcare setting, people are not talking about you anymore. They're forced to talk with you but they cannot talk with you if we don't first do our part to ensure that they understand our language. And understanding our language is not pandering only and saying, I'm gonna speak to you the way that you understand. It is also, I'm speaking to you the way that you understand, but understand concurrently this is the way that they speak. 
and teach the person to use them interchangeably because as a healthcare professional, you're not only serving their client, your role is also to be an educator, a teacher. The second thing I wanna talk about that's become one of the big pieces in education is this idea of social media. Social media has become such a part of the fabric of urban teaching and learning that we even have a hip hop ed hashtag, which I ask you guys to tweet. Every Tuesday night at 9 p.m., educators literally jump on Twitter and have online professional development. Students get on Twitter and advocate for what's going on in their classrooms. Do we have a critical mass of folks in our underserved communities who we know that we are not teaching them enough, we're not giving them what they need in the health space enough, and we're not giving them a community for which they can advocate for themselves? The one place you can advocate for yourselves in 2014 is in social media spaces. Our work has to be also, in addition to teaching the language, to introduce these folks to these platforms so they can form connections with each other, create social networks with other people who have those same kind of issues so they can advocate together. The chief mechanism through which oppression persists is allowing folks to feel like they're going through their obstacles in isolation. Therefore, it is our responsibility to introduce folks in these communities to those spaces so they can find connections with others like them and co-advocate. If you could have an Arab Spring forum on Twitter, could you imagine what would happen if asthma clusters that exist in New York City, those young people who are going through that every single day were able to get together and tweet together and create a critical mass to attack and address the issues that are being placed in those communities. And they can stand up for themselves because we as healthcare professionals have taught them or created a platform for them to do so. Lastly, I also want to talk about this notion of a Pentecostal pedagogy, right? As a key piece of serving a client or educating a student, which is that there are ways of knowing and being and expressing and communicating in the world that are part of who we are as people of color. They're most expressed in spaces like the black church. They're expressed in spaces like drum circles. They're expressed in places like hip hop ciphers. If you look at each of those spaces, there are these sort of shared practices within those spaces. And so we have to learn to adopt the language, dispositions, traits, characteristics of the educators within those non-academic spaces to utilize and how we learn how to engage with our students and engage with our clients. Y'all feel me? So if we have all these conversations and I've ended on this idea of engagement, what is the chief mechanism for engagement? This is why we talk about hip hop. Because hip hop is the chief tool through which the most underserved populations on the planet have found a way to communicate. If we realize as an educator, I have to adopt the language of the healthcare professional, as a healthcare professional, I have to adopt the language as an educator, as healthcare professionals and educators, we have to adopt the language of the young people and the language and the culture of young people is hip hop. So now we're focusing on hip hop. What, what about this phenomenon? What, what, what is it about hip hop? Well, one, hip hop is youth culture, but two, and this is the thing that's, that's most significant to talk about in these academic sanitized spaces that we will unsanitize with truth, is that no matter who you are, where you are as a person of color, whether you deny it or not, whether you throw on a bow tie or a blazer or not, whether or not you are older or younger, you are hip hop. You can deny it all you want, you can extract it from your being if you want, because hip hop is what the ancestors have given us. The name doesn't mean much. But if you look at the core tenets of hip hop, the call and response, 
the speaking and metaphor and analogy, the storytelling, the communication in circles and ciphers, the competitions and battles, the music reaching that feverish pitch to have that lady in the back of the church jump up and lose her wig, that transcendence for the oppression of an everyday space because once that music hits you, you're somewhere so crazy that the, the, the oppression of reality, you escape from it temporarily. All those phenomena are found in the West African talking jump. They're found in slave narratives. They're found in the black church, and they're found in hip hop. So if you say that you are not hip hop, that means you're divorcing yourself from your African-American history and trajectory, both concurrently. So now we go back to hip hop. What's hip hop telling us? What, 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 is, what is hip hop giving us information about? Well, it's saying one, speaking metaphor and analogy. Hip hop is saying, first of all, it's rhythm and beats and bass lines mean something. Even till today, there's a song I don't like and I, I don't like the lyrics per se, but once that beat drop, I can't help it. You know what I mean? It's, just, it's in my cultural memory. Do you guys, uh, there's a recent research study that was done um, on a zebra finch. This is the, the geek biologist in me emerging. Pardon me for a second. That is zebra finches, these birds, and these birds would learn their song from a male member of the family. And it's a complex song, and the, the males would learn it, then they'd teach it to their offspring, and it went on for generations. So these, these are scientists say, you know what? If they're learning this thing from the male member of the family, what would happen if you took a young male zebra finch, and you extracted him from his lineage, you put him somewhere else completely, and then you see what kind of song emerges? So they put them in this separate space, and they watched the zebra finch. And the zebra finch started making all these crazy noises. And those noises had nothing at all to do with the noises of the males in, in, in the lineage. I said, see, they, they, you know, there, there it is. It, it, you know, it's, it's learned. So this happened for one generation. Those finches would then teach the next finches the bad song, like the song that was not like the original song. So you're like, man, this, this, this is crazy. Look at these finches singing these crazy songs. That has nothing to do with the original zebra finch. First generation, second generation, third generation. By the third generation, though, you know what happened? Without any contact with the original ancestor, the zebra finch found a way to maneuver the circumstances and the settings, maneuver those social spaces, and start singing a song of their ancestor zebra finch. And they say culture is sometimes learned. And that, to me, says culture sometimes is embedded in your DNA and your consciousness. And if that's the case, and we're talking about education, and our president says that education is a civil rights issue of our time, let's put that in perspective, that education is a civil rights issue of our time. Because we know that a poor education predicts poor health. We know that a poor education means you make less money. It means a poor education means you can't provide for your family. So education is a civil rights issue of our time. And if that's the case, I would make the argument that the extraction of culture from education. It's the most egregious violation of those civil rights. Thank you. Right. I know we got time for some questions. And that's, that's the plan. Good morning, Professor. Good morning, sir. Salute you, sir. Um, I'm a history teacher of 17 years in policy debate, and uh, I grew up in this neighborhood, actually. Mother went to TC, I went to TC, so this is my neighborhood. This is where I grew up in the, in the midst of hip-hop. Um, I teach an African, African diaspora course, and, um, and we're looking at hip-hop as a means for expression, right? Um, 
And one of the questions we're asking ourselves um, is how the hip hop of the late 80s, early 90s was such a means and mechanism for getting out a message of, of that which the, the, uh, the professor mentioned in terms of crackers, right? That's the element that KRS-One and Public Enemy and Poirot teachers, they were talking about, right? So now the students are asking, well, we don't have segregation anymore in terms of, in, as, in, as an extension of the 60s and early, late 80s, which hip hop was, right? We don't have segregation anymore. We don't have these things that the people in the 60s, and even your time, McCutcheon, that you grew up with. So I showed them this video letter to the president. Um, and so we're looking at the prison industrial complex. So these, all these issues emerge, right? So now I'm asking, well, what are the issues that hip hop can, can act as a means for this self-expression, self, this advocacy, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm asking you, so how can, uh, and you mentioned this kind of crazed energy that when, hit, when the song comes on, mm -hmm. you just feel it, you move, right? Mm -hmm. So how can we channel this crazed energy, if you will, uh, into something that's constructive, that's, that's, that's positive, that presents the issues that they're facing today through hip hop, mm -hmm. showing them that uh, although KRS one and Public Enemy were people of my time, uh, there are people uh, who are maybe the, or the, although they maybe underground, mm -hmm. even those on the top people can still use hip hop as a means for advocacy, uh, self awareness, and also. In terms of positive reinforcement, a lot of times, unfortunately, some of the hip hop songs are not necessarily in terms of health and mental health mm -hmm. and, and awareness, of, uh, awareness of us. Sometimes the songs don't necessarily uh, recognize the appreciation of the, of the physical body, right? Mm -hmm. So how can we, uh, how, can this, how can songs, uh, how can uh, artists begin to use and how can hip hop kind of get back to the mm -hmm. idea of not only this kind of self-advocacy, but also self-awareness, self-appreciation, self-love? Mm. Well, what a brilliant multi-layered question, which is why I, I really try to give enough time for us having dialogue with each other. So the first thing I want to say is that, um, you know, the biggest lie ever told to contemporary America is that we live in a post-racial era. And, or that we are, you know, we, that we are a post-racial generation. And so the first thing I want to say is that, you know, part of our task is to introduce to young people that, you know, we're actually living in a much more dangerous time than we've ever had before. Because, you know, if you're dealing with overt and blatant racism, you know where to go, who to avoid in many respects. And when you're dealing with these subtle forms that are embedded into the institutions that we're, that we're in, it's so hard to fight it that when it sneaks up on you, you don't even, you go into it unprepared. So the first thing I would say to young people is to let them know that they live in an era that's actually much more dangerous than the past era where the public enemies um, were birthed from. That, you know, your task and your responsibility is actually much higher than theirs ever was. Because those folks have to direct, they, they could have something to focus their attention on. And, and we're focusing on these, 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 these murky, quiet, smiling your face, stab you in the back type of scenarios. While concurrently, on occasion, there are blatant issues like the Jordan Davis case that emerged, where, where the case is named, uh, y'all gonna get me to preaching this morning, I, I didn't intend to, where, where the case is named the Thug Music Trial because he was listening to music and not, and not the, I'm white and I have the right to tell you to shut the F up trial because that's what spurred on the whole dialogue. So I think introducing young people to those scenarios is first and foremost. The second thing that I would say is that, you know, you don't want to tell young people to embrace um, an identity that is non-hip hop for, for this reason. If you, if you work for a very long throughout your life to be able to construct a, a non-hip hop identity, as you go through education, the more degrees you get, the more diplomas you get, the more papers you get, the more appropriate you learn to speak, the better well-dressed you are, the more you leave your community, et cetera, et cetera. If you, if you lead them to believe that, they end up in, again, a very 
terrible place because on one level, you can never go back to the hood when you leave the hood and you sell out on the hood. And sometimes you're never even accepted in the place that you're chasing to begin with. And so that message also has to be upfront to young people, that they have to sort of embrace this, this hip hop hybridized identities. Mad smart and I spit bars. You know what I mean? Like, and that those things don't mean that they're mutually exclusive, that they could be all the same thing at the same time. So that's, that's the message I would share. And then the last thing is, if you want to address what corporate America has done to hip hop culture, because that's what it is, it ain't hip hop. Hip, hip hop still exists, Jasiri X still exists. Do you guys know who Jasiri X is? You know, Jasiri X still exists. Talib, you know, on occasion, he'll still hit you in the head. Yasin Bey still exists. Yasin Bey, most deaf, said, listen, I got to leave this craziness that is America and go to South Africa so I can record this album without trauma. So that still exists. And so we have to introduce young people to those kind of artists. But finally, we have to let them know that they are artists themselves. And you can create the hip hop that you're looking for. So with the Science Genius Project, we have young people in New York City public schools who are writing raps about science. What? Yes. They're writing raps about science. And they're not corny raps either. They can spit. You know what I mean? And we tell them, like, it's a competition. There are other kids rapping as well. And once these kids start writing their raps and in, in, so infusing their raps with academic content, putting science formulas in there, explaining their life worlds, guess what happens? They start developing a, t a distaste for the commercial rap that's been force-fed to them. See, what's happened with rap? I mean, look, man, listen. Look, <laughs> if you take hip-hop culture, there's a realization and an understanding by the power wielders that this, is, this thing here is powerful. This is the one thing that could transform what's going on in the, this community. If I know something is that powerful, the first thing I want to do is I want to eliminate it. They realize that it can't be eliminated. So if it can't be eliminated, what I'm going to try to do is I want to infuse different types of content into that message so I can portray out to the public. The, the, the chief consumers of the hip hop that we describe as negative are not young people of color in urban settings. The chief consumers of negative gangster thug hip hop is white middle class America. They, they support and promote and buy corporate thuggery because that it feeds their insatiable lust for the negativity and the baseness in blackness. They, they need that to portray their images of what we should be. So this is why I tell folks, how could you abandon hip hop? Because if you abandon hip hop and they're doing that to it, and the kids are listening to it because it's deeply embedded in their DNA already, they're gonna go to whatever is available, which is more of the reason why we gotta hip, infuse hip hop into health and education. So when the kids then take the hip hop, write the hip hop, create the hip hop, a complex the hip hop, deep with the hip hop, guess what happens? I had a kid tell me the other day, Dr. E, I can't listen to French Montana no more. I said, why can't you listen to French Montana no more? He said, all he says all the time is, I ain't worried about nothing. I ain't worried about nothing. He was like, he doesn't have no bars. And I was like, well, you know, it's a nice beat. He said, did you hear my rap about DNA? When, when I said, this joint here is the classic deconstructing the structure of deoxyribonucleic acid. And I said, I, di I did hear you say that. And he said, my rhyme is so dope that I couldn't listen to that no more because that's so whack. So if you teach the young people to embrace their culture and start recreating different forms of their culture, they start developing a distaste for hip hop that was force fed from the feds. But y'all ain't hear me though. Like, so, so then they start, they start re embracing their culture and creating a new taste for their culture and creating new communities. And once that happens, then we can counter what we're being fed. I hope I answered your question. Yes, sir. Um, thank you so much for a wonderful presentation. My name is Nixon. I am a graduate student here at um, Health Education. 
Um, the question I have is um, has to do with the concept of um, mental colonization. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay, so the question I have is um, has to do with the whole notion and idea of mental colonization. How do we decolonize the minds of the youth and um, from the Eurocentric ideas um, in order for us to de continue to develop um, an identity that will speak for the culture that our ancestors brought um, hundreds of years ago mm. um, in our schools? Uh, so another brilliant question. I don't, don't, the quick answer, and there's no quick answer. I mean, uh, you know, when you, you know, that, that is a deep construct. I mean, I, I feel like I myself constantly have to go through the process of decolonizing self. Like, it's an it's a active process. You don't get to a point where you're like, all right, I'm decolonized, I'm good. You know, it's an it's a active, ongoing process. And so, you know, the one response I would have is that you occupy. You know, you, you know you, if you occupy Wall Street, you know, we could occupy the mind of our young, minds of our young people, we could occupy our schools. I mean, the chief thing to let people see a different version of who they are is to let them see a different version of who they are, which means that you, this is why I talked about the issue earlier about you know, scholars divorcing themselves or academics, you know, let me strip off all my hip hop so they can let me in the door. Because if you do that, then the young people, don't, they don't have an example. When you go into a school as a young man of color and you go in there and you embrace who you are, when you walk up to them and you don't shake their hands, you give them a pound, right? When you say, what up, son, you good? Like, and who are you? Oh, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a grad student at a teacher's college at Columbia. Your presence alone, our presence, our bodies are a political act. You know what I mean? Like, the, the way you move, the way you talk, the way you walk, the way you engage, who you shake hands with, the nods, the bop, the George Jefferson strut, all of that movement, all of that movement are codes. And so if you wear that proudly without apology, concurrently with, with wearing your academic self, they're not the, they're, it's not one and the same. Like, I, I earned my PhD, y'all can't take that from me, but at the same time, I earned my hood credibility. You can't take that from me either. And I wear both of those without apology. You know, when we wear our multiple selves without apology and present that to young people, they start understanding that there, there are avenues through which they can navigate these spaces. Then they learn the art of the code switch. Then they learn the art of when and where to say what. When, then they know when to transgress. Then they know how to play the game that's being played against them. So it requires us embracing our multiple selves and presenting those selves to our young people. By definition, <laughs> not hip hop. Yeah, I didn't even notice. <laughs> um, so I'm with a group of medical students in the Bronx, and we started a program to encourage minorities to enter into medical fields and kind of make them more aware of the medical school that's right nearby. And so I'm wondering what you think my role should be in is serving the community, as, but not giving the community, because I don't, I don't want to empower myself. I'm not trying to give, but I'm trying to serve. So what, yeah. how do you think that works? Your role is your role, sis. Like, look. You know, we wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't, have, we would never have been able to achieve the, the kind of, 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 of accolade strengths that we, we've done as a community without allies. It's just impossible. So, you know, I, I'm like, you know, there's a camp of people who are like, no white people. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not a no white people. I, like, I love white people. You know what I mean? I, I just love white people who's, who's down for the cause with me. So I think, I think it's, it's a matter of understanding who you are, where you are, being authentically who you are. So the, you know, the one thing is you don't, you don't have to be 
what your notion or vision is of what the kids are or what the client is to connect with them. You have to be authentically who you are. All that is required is that you show some respect and admiration for the culture so that when you are who you are from wherever you're from, and I don't know where you're from, but I'm going to give a broad example. I'm from Idaho, and I'm a potato farmer. You know what I mean? Like an, an Idaho potato farmer can be more effective than a black man from the hood who has lost his true self. So your Idaho potato farmer self saying, this is who I am. I be, yeah, I be skinning the potatoes all day, right, who I am. But I want to know who you are. I want to respect you. I want to understand you. Teach me about yourself. I, I, I do this with young people who are from where I'm from. I'm like, man, what's that lyric to that song? You know, I, I probably listen to the song in the car on the way over and know it verbatim. But I purposefully feign ignorance about the culture in order to create the pedagogical space for them to be able to teach me something about who they are. Because once they teach me something about who they are, then there's a willingness for there to be some reciprocity. And so all you have to do is create the space for them to be able to engage with you about who you are authentically, and that's all that's required. It's not hard work. You ain't gotta be like them, you ain't gotta dress like them, you don't have to talk like them, you just have to be who you are and respect who they are. Hi, can you, can you hear me? Yeah. Can you expand on the pretty brown girls who get high accolades concept? Because I sat and I heard that and I was like, I know this brother, I know him well. And that felt a little misogynistic mm -hmm. as what could be described as a pretty brown girl with three Ivy League degrees. So here's one thing that I want us to not get caught up in. And I, and I, and I, I understand and appreciate your point. It, I, I don't want us to get caught up in um, a conversation about the process. I want us to get uh, uh, about the uh, about the issue. I want us to have a deeper conversation about the process. So the reality essentially is this: that yes, there are sisters in schools right now, today, who are being validated in that school for donning an identity that is anti-academic, and they're and, and and that's just a reality. And the reason why I address it. It's because I am saddened by it. If I wasn't saddened by it, I would let it be. And, and, and so to me, the possession of an Ivy League, look, you can have Ivy League degrees. I got degrees. I, I have friends who've gotten degrees. You can have an Ivy League degree, three of them, four of them, five of them, seven of them, eight of them, and be dead. Because even within these Ivy spaces, there are gradients. Meek Mill will say there are levels to this shit, which means that you go into that space and even with those degrees, you are always put into the lowest rungs of that space. You know what I mean? So it's not the attainment of the degree that becomes the thing. It's the idea that by being woman and black, you are always relegated to the subaltern position. It's a, it, I'm just calling forth what exists. I'm not, I'm not downing the fact that that thing exists. I'm identifying the fact that it exists and putting it public so we can address it. Listen, and especially in science, you know, when we talk about science and people talk about hip-hop, and they're like, it's a hip-hop scholar, and you mentioned woman in a, in a way that I might perceive in a way that I don't like, you know, it, it, it call, automatically because of my hip-hop self, it calls forth the misogyny in hip-hop. It does. But we have to understand there's no more misogynistic discipline than the sciences. If we, and, 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 and so if we're going to call it out in hip-hop, we've got to call it out in science and politics and academia as well. So, you know, I, I understand you, and I, and, I, and I feel you. I just want us to understand that the issue is ensuring that 
our sisters, even when they make it to spaces that we would view as a great space, when they enter that space and are still relegated to subaltern positions, it's still just as problematic, as far as I'm concerned. Yes, but you also have to acknowledge that all of the sisters that make it are not necessarily making it and being relegated. So oh, those of course. Are, but you, you don't say it. And when you don't say it, what you omit is just as important as what you include. I, I absolutely agree. And so I will say, and I appreciate you for checking me, sister, because um, that, that's what community does. That's what community does. Look, you're not going to get me going again. But love is not always a grin. I don't want to hear a whole bunch of amens the whole time. I want to hear, word, I'm about to do something. Or word, fix that, bro. So I appreciate it. And I want us to, I mean, when you say that example is also me, I, I've been accused many a time. Whenever I say I'm not going to give the academic talk and I give this talk and somebody walks in after I say I'm not giving the academic, academic talk and I'm who I am. And they say, there goes another one of them. You know, how he get a PhD and got to get a job at Columbia. It, it happens to us all the time. So, of course, there are brilliant, brilliant, brilliant sisters who enter into those spaces and smash those spaces to pieces. That's a part of who we are. It's a virtue of black excellence. Um, I was just calling forth a reality that I observed, and I appreciate you for bringing that up. Thank you. So, this is why you want to come to the 5.30 to 7.30 dinner where the 2013 winner of the Genius Science Battle is going to perform. And you will have time to approach Christopher Emden's table and check him <laughs> or praise him or ask him a question. Because we're going to stay the best on-time conference ever. And now you also um, know why you want to go to the conference website and you want to register and go to the webinar so you will have access to one of the most phenomenal talks about uh, what we would call health literacy that has been totally reframed. And then you can share it and forward it. But we're going to stay at the best on-time conference ever. You have exactly 14 and a half minutes to get to your next session. We are actually going to launch in this room a hip-hop health campaign nationally and globally. And we're going to ask Christopher Emden to go back to the stage because we're going to allow the first seven people to get to the stage to be part of a tweet of the person who is our 21st century millennium genius. Okay, So the first seven people to get to the stage can be in this tweet.